author Bob Goff said, love one another. We don't need more instructions. We need more examples. You know, if everybody knew everyone else's problems, if we all knew each other's hang-ups and fears and struggles and failures, and still knowing all of that, we made the decision to love one another anyway. Meaning you're going to love other people no matter how messed up they are, and all those other people are going to love you back no matter how messed up you are. You know, first of all, we would all probably understand grace, what God has actually done for us in a much deeper way than many of us probably do now. Secondly, we would all probably be a lot more humble than most people are today. And thirdly, we would all probably be much closer to one another as the family of God than we are even now. Because, listen, the strongest and healthiest relationships are always between people who mutually understand the grace that has been afforded them which causes us to be humble toward one another and far more inclined to affirm each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. The truth is that's how it's supposed to be in the church because that's what Jesus did for us, right? Knowing all of our sin and all of our struggles and all of our failures, he chose to love us anyway. But the only way we can do that for each other, of course, is by putting others before ourselves, and yet that isn't in our nature. As human beings, we're often born uh, focused, we're always born focused on ourselves. Think about a little baby. It cries for what it wants all the time, right? We naturally think about what we want more than we think about others and what they want. We intuitively take care of ourselves first because that's what comes naturally to us, which means in order for that to change, well, then our nature what comes naturally to us has to change as well, which is where Jesus comes in. Because when you become a follower of Christ, when he does his work of salvation and redemption in your life, you're given a new nature. The old man dies and the new man comes to life. The Apostle Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Second Corinthians 5.17. Of course, that doesn't mean we no longer have to choose to put others first every day. We certainly do. We still have to make that choice because we haven't yet been perfected. We still have to die to ourselves every day, as Jesus points out in Luke 9, 23, which means we choose to die to our sin nature every day. And in Christ, we now have the ability to do that, which also means we now have the ability to truly love others more than we actually love ourselves because we have the Spirit of Christ living inside of us. We're, we're new creations with a new nature, which allows us to love in ways we never could before. But again, even as Christians, we still have to make that conscious choice every single day to love others more than we love ourselves, which means, and uh, this is the key to all of this, loving others more than we love ourselves means being fixated on the source of that love. Jesus Christ. Because listen, when he's the first priority in your life, then putting others before yourself, it actually comes quite naturally. Which also means if you're not loving others more than you love yourself, then Jesus Christ is not the first priority in your life. You can declare your allegiance to him, your commitment to him, your faith in him, all you want to. But if you're not putting others in your life before yourself, then Jesus is unequivocally not the most important person in your life. And so when I, when I find myself, for instance, 
not putting someone else first in my own life, maybe it's a friend or even a family member, the wrong question for me to ask myself is, what is it about that person that's making me not put them first in my life right now? That may be the question we naturally ask ourselves in that situation, but that is in fact the wrong question to ask. The right question is, why am I not putting Jesus Christ first in my life right now? Because if I was, then I would be preferring that friend or that family member over myself. By the way, this is a big part of what it means to die to ourselves, which Jesus and the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, at the very least, all said that we must do in order to follow Christ, because loving others more than we love ourselves means loving Jesus more than we love ourselves. And so we die to all of the desires in our lives which are not found in Christ. That's a big part of what loving Jesus more than we love ourselves actually looks like. Uh, Listen, there's this misnomer. I hear it all the time, even from Christians in our culture that, that, say, that say you cannot love others if you don't first love yourself. That is antithetical to everything that Jesus taught. We read it last week in Luke 14, 26, where Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And again, we talked about it. That phrase, to hate, was a Semitic expression. It literally means to love less. So he's not, Jesus isn't saying you have to hate yourself. Not at all. What he's saying was, you have to love me more than you love yourself. It's Jesus first, then others. Not, not me first. Dennis Kinlaw said it this way, Satan disguises submission to himself under the ruse of personal autonomy. He never asks us to become his servants. Never once did the serpent say to Eve, I want to be your master. The shift in commitment is never from Christ to evil. It's always from Christ to self. And instead of his will, self-interest now rules and what I want reigns. This is the essence of sin. You cannot truly love others if you don't first love Jesus more than anything or anyone else, including and most of all, yourself. And this is the key. This is the linchpin that holds the family of God together, as we talked about last week. Our fidelity to and unity in Christ is what binds us together, and it's what every other aspect of this life as members of the family of God naturally flows out of, which is what the family of God in our story was learning on their journey through this life as well, which we'll see as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Joshua. And so today... We're going to finish chapter 22, which we started last week. And as the people of God have ended their conquest of Canaan, and now they're going their separate ways, especially the two and a half tribes that were promised land by Moses east of the Jordan River, known as the Transjordanian tribes. And so just some brief backstory here. Now that the conquest has ended... Joshua sends these Transjordanian tribes, the eastern tribes, on their way home, and he blesses them greatly as they leave, and everything seems like it's great. Until those eastern tribes get to the Jordan River, and just before they cross over to the eastern side of the river, they stop and build, and I'm quoting, an altar of imposing size, according to verse 10. As soon as the rest of the people of Israel hear about it, they gather together to make war 
against the two and a half tribes because it was strictly forbidden by God back in Leviticus chapter 17, verses 8 and 9, for the people of God to sacrifice offerings to him anywhere other than the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was currently in Shiloh over on the western side of the Jordan, far from where they were with the rest of Israel. And so the the building of this altar by the eastern tribes appeared to the western tribes to be a turning away from the law of God. It looked to them like a direct affront to the purity of God's word and the purity of God's worship. And because the law in Deuteronomy 13, 12 through 15 instructed God's people literally to strike down with the sword all the inhabitants of any town that turns away from God, the Western tribes are now preparing for all-out war with the Eastern tribes. Not because they now hate the Eastern tribes, but because of their great love for God and and devotion to God first. And yet, before going to war, the Western tribes send a delegation to the Eastern tribes, led by the high priest's son, a man named Phineas, to first declare what was going on, uh, to clarify what was going on, and then to give the Eastern tribes a chance to make things right with God before the Western tribes attack them for what seemed to be to them apostasy, a total abandonment of their faith. This is actually a principle that's taught all through the New Testament by Jesus himself in Matthew 18 and Paul and others throughout the New Testament. You, you go to your brother if there's an offense and try to win your brother back right before you come at him with the whole congregation. So this is a, is a very abbreviated account I just gave you from last week. If you missed it, by the way, and you want to get the whole story, that you can find that on our YouTube channel or mobile app or website. It'll help you understand much better the context of what we're going through today. Because last week we outlined three imperatives, it's the first half of this sermon, three imperatives uh, for these people of God that would have to be manifested among the family of God if they're to remain unified. Because this is a, a potentially pivotal moment for them. This is a major time of crisis and, and it turned out to be a colossal misunderstanding, which we'll see, which could have been so much worse. But because they were committed to God first, they were able to put each other first which had a profound bearing on how they ended up dealing with each other in this potentially disastrous misunderstanding. So today, in the last half of the chapter, we not only find uh, the resolution to this incredibly tense standoff, but we're going to find three more imperatives, points four through six in our outline. We did one through three last week, which the family of God then and the family of God today, by the way, must have working among us if we're to remain unified and effective in becoming what God's created us to become and effective in doing what he's called us to do. So let's jump back into the chapter right where we left off last week and look at part two of this message. We'll, we'll go to Joshua chapter 22. We're going to start by reading verses 21 through 25. Uh, this is the response by the eastern tribes. This is the moment right after the eastern tribes are confronted by the heads of the western tribes about this altar that appears to have been built in rebellion against the word of God. So the Transjordanian tribes of the eastern tribes are now responding. We'll start at verse 21. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, these are the Transjordanian tribes, said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The Mighty One, God the Lord, the Mighty One, God the Lord, He knows And let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? 
For the Lord has made the Jordan's uh, boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Okay, so when confronted, these Transjordanian tribes offer an explanation for the altar they've just built that not only seems completely reasonable, their explanation, but in no way violates the law of the Lord. First of all, they have no intention of using the altar for sacrifices, which they make clear in verses 23 and 24, where they explain, if we built this altar to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. In other words, you don't have to go to war with us. Let the Lord do it directly. But we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord? the God of Israel. In other words, this altar has nothing to do with sacrifices. This is meant to be a memorial between us so that the generations to come won't ever forget that we, the Eastern tribes, fought for you, the Western tribes, so that you could have the land you're now living on. You see, the Eastern tribes were simply trying to ensure their unity with the Western tribes and their ability to worship with them for generations to come, which was not only a noble reason to build a memorial, but it was directly in line with their love for one another. They were actually thinking of each other and their future relationship. But notice what their first concern is, even before they answer these heads of Israel. Before they ever say a word about why they built the altar, before they ever even begin to explain themselves to the Western tribes, the very first thing they do is appeal to God himself. Verse 22, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. You see, they know that God knows the truth. They know that he knows their hearts. And you know, sometimes, sometimes we have to be satisfied with being right before God, even if that means we're wrong in the eyes of other people. Two weeks ago, we talked about God being our place of refuge. Well, when, when we are misunderstood by other people, our first refuge is God because he knows our hearts. He knows the truth. And so we appeal to him first because we cannot be right with other people if we're not first right with God. Right? Your relationships in the family of God cannot be healthy if your relationship with God is not healthy. So when there's conflict among us as brothers and sisters in Christ, our first appeal is actually to God himself to be sure that our relationship with him is where it needs to be. Far too often Christians try to mitigate conflict with other Christians before spending any time with God first. We see it in husband-wife relationships in counseling all the time. But listen, the truth is the vast majority of conflicts among believers could be resolved far quicker and far easier if we would first spend time with God, allowing him to confront our own hearts long before we ever try to confront each other. It's an interesting observation, I think, to be made in regard to this situation between the tribes in this story between the Western, uh, because the Western tribes, uh, the Western tribes' whole problem with the Eastern tribes was that they thought the Eastern tribes built an altar in order to turn away from God. And yet the Eastern tribes' whole problem with the Western tribes was they were convinced the Western tribes would eventually force the Eastern tribes to turn away from God. In verse 25, they explain that we were afraid your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. So they're both making assumptions about the other in regard to their commitment to God and their future unity 
as the family of God. And I just wonder if they'd approached God about it before approaching each other. I just wonder if this misunderstanding would have happened at all. And of course, we'll never know. But at least the eastern tribes take that step now, once confronted by the western tribes, which was certainly the right thing for them to do. And they do it in the strongest fashion. They don't just name God as a witness in their defense. They refer to their chief witness in verse 22, El, in the ancient Hebrew, it means the mighty one, Elohim, which is God, and then Yehovah, or Yahweh, which is the Lord. And then they immediately repeat all of that again. Because although there's clearly a misunderstanding about the purpose of this altar, they don't want there to be any misunderstanding whatsoever about the identity of who it is they're appealing to in the matter. The final authority in all things, the God of Israel himself. And so after appealing to God as a sign of their purest intentions for building this altar, only after that do they, do they then explain why they built it. It was to be a constant reminder to all the tribes of Israel what God had done for them and through them for each other, which without a doubt we need among the family of God today, just as much as they did then. Okay, For us to be able to maintain a constant unity between us as the family of God, we have to constantly remind one another what God has done for us. This is something my wife is really good at. Whenever I begin to doubt in my circumstances or to worry about other people's motivations in different situations, she will continually remind me of all the things that God has done for us and through us so far. And I'll tell you, it builds my faith. It, it lifts my spirit. Most of all, it strengthens my resolve to remain committed to God and to his people. And yet a few weeks later or a few months later, I can find myself right back there again, doubting again. And I need another reminder of all that God has done. And I wonder why is it we have such short memories when it comes to all that God has done for us. I used to read about the Israelites and their wandering and think to myself, these people are completely crazy. After God supernaturally brings 10 plagues upon the people of Egypt, the Israelites are released by Pharaoh after 400 years of bondage and slavery, Exodus 7 through 12. Then God supernaturally guides them through the wilderness as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, Exodus 13, 21. Then pursued by the Egyptian military, God supernaturally parts the Red Sea so they can safely cross to the other side on dry ground, Exodus 14, 21. Then he supernaturally covers the Egyptian army, including their horses and chariots, with the very same waters, saving the Israelites yet again, Exodus 14, 27 and 28. Then supernaturally, he makes quail fall from the sky so the people could have meat to eat. Quail falling out of the sky, Exodus 16, 13. Then supernaturally, he makes bread fall from the sky. Bread falls from the... And you know it's like the bread your mom used to make. Like it's all warm inside and soft, you know, like the homemade bread. So they could have something to eat, Exodus 16, 14. Then supernaturally, he makes water come out of a rock so the people could have something to drink, Exodus 17, 6. And then in Exodus 32, after calling Moses up to Mount Sinai, as God writes his law for his people on stone tablets with his finger, the people who happened to be waiting for Moses to come back down from the mountain did what only makes sense after all that God had done for them supernaturally. They melt down all their gold jewelry and make a statue of a cow and then they worship it as their God. Are you kidding me? 
I used to think these people are insane. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever after all that God had done for them supernaturally that they would forget and turn away from him and chase after worthless idols. I used to think they're completely crazy until I realized that so many of us today do the very same thing. We doubt God in spite of everything he's done for us. We allow our faith to waver while we look to other things for answers. Listen, one of the very best things we could ever do for each other when a brother or sister in Christ is having a faith crisis, doubting God, turning away from him, one of the very best things that we can do in that situation is to remind one another all that God has already done for us and through us. Because those, listen, those memories, when reminded often enough, those memories can become memorials. They can become monuments of imposing size in our own lives that continually remind us of the greatness of God, the faithfulness of God. And those memories, those memorials, they'll build your faith. They'll lift your spirit. Most of all, they'll strengthen your resolve to remain committed to God and to his people. It's one of the reasons we take communion together as often as we do, to be continually reminded of what Jesus did for us supernaturally when all hope seemed lost for humanity. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Let's keep reading now as the Eastern tribes continue their defense in building this altar. Verses 26 through 29. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do... uh, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings, so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. So they reiterate the reason for building the altar to begin with to prevent the eastern tribes from being cut off from the western tribes in their worship of the God of Israel. And you uh, you have to understand why this was such a major concern for these eastern tribes was because they cross over the Jordan. Once they're on the other side, they are physically cut off from the western tribes. Crossing the river, the Jordan River, particularly in the second millennium B.C., was no small feat, okay? The great rift valley that the Jordan uh, River flows through is a massive trench, unlike anything else on earth. The 19th century Scottish theologian George Adam Smith described the Jordan River Valley which, by the way, is just one part of the Great Rift Valley. He described it this way, I'm quoting. He said, there may be something on the surface of another planet to match the Jordan Valley. There's nothing on this. No other part of our Earth, uncovered by water, sinks to 300 feet below the level of the ocean. But here we have a rift more than 160 miles long and from 2 to 15 broad, which falls from the sea level to as deep as 1,292 feet below it at the coast of the Dead Sea, while the bottom of the latter is 1,300 feet deeper still. In this trench, there are the Jordan, a river nearly 100 miles long, two great lakes, respectively 12 and 53 miles in length. He also referred to the Jordan Valley as this colossal ditch. Okay, the point is, 
the eastern tribes had good reason for concern that they would be cut off from worshiping their God with the rest of Israel because this massive physical barrier was between them. And yet the western tribes had good reason to prepare for war when they heard that the eastern tribes had built an altar of imposing size because they didn't know at that point, of course, what it was for. Look, typically when you have two parties in an intense standoff who both believe they're right, they're prepared to do battle, really bad things can happen. Whether that's between these tribes of Israel or friends in the church or a husband and wife. Don't forget, these, uh, these men, by the way, of the Transjordanian tribes, the Eastern tribes, are described in chapter 1 as men of valor, valiant warriors, it says in some translations. These are not your average military men. These were the military elite. These were the special forces, the, the guys who were among the finest fighting force in all of Israel. And here they were after constructing a memorial altar to honor what God had done among them and their brothers of the western tribes being confronted and accused of apostasy by a delegation from the western tribes. This situation could have gone south in a hurry. It could have been really bad. And yet in verse 29, nothing less than civil war among the Israelites is averted with one final culminating statement by the eastern tribes in their defense, which was spoken in great humility. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. So these eastern tribes who were right, they were correct in their building of the altar, who were right in their reasons for doing so, who were superior in their numbers and fighting ability to this delegation from the western tribes, and yet who were being accused by them of apostasy, even after leaving their own homes and families to fight alongside the western tribes for seven long years in order to secure land for the western tribes, land they themselves would never live in, but instead of hardening their hearts and taking offense toward their brothers from the west and overwhelming them militarily in that moment, which they could have easily done, instead they choose the way of humility because they love God more than they loved anything else. And they understood that the reason for this confrontation by the Western tribes to begin with was motivated by the Western tribes' love for God as well. You see, they were able to humbly put one another first in their lives because they'd already put God first in their lives. And as we'll see, the result of that humility between them was ultimately unity in the family of God, okay? Unity among us cannot exist without true humility toward one another. Uh, we live in such a self-centered, self-focused culture that true humility can be hard to come by. That shouldn't be the case within the church, among the family of God, and yet there's a lot of false humility in the American church today, which is just pride, by the way, all dressed up to look like something it's not. And the way you can tell the difference, by the way, between false humility and true humility is the end game. Okay? True humility always seeks to lift up Christ first and others before ourselves. False humility, in the end, is always meant to elevate ourselves in the eyes of others. And so when someone, you know, makes a post that says, oh, I'm so privileged and honored and humbled to let you know, and then there's three paragraphs about how great they are, and what they've done. We need to be careful 
we can be self-deprecating and agreeable toward others in all sorts of situations. But in the end, if our humble and generous expressions and even our service to others, if that's really intended to elevate ourselves and the hearts and minds of other people to make us look good, that's false humility. Because we're not truly loving others or preferring others more than we love ourselves, we're certainly not putting Christ first. And unfortunately, that's become all too common in the church today. People who want the church to satisfy their own desire for recognition or for position or for authority or for a title. They want to look good among their, their brothers and sisters in Christ. So they serve in order to be recognized. They want to be elevated among their peers until even their ministry to others is ultimately focused on promoting themselves. I, I know a pastor who loves to post pictures of himself feeding the homeless and talking all about all the stuff he did for, for people who are on the streets. What's the end game? Who are we elevating? Right? It's, it's one of the reasons people become so territorial about their ministries in the church, because those ministries have become all about them instead of being all about the people who those ministries were intended to minister to in the first place. You're not making their life any better by posting about it on social media. And I'm just going to tell you, while I'm on my little soapbox here, clergy pastors, guys like me, are not exempt. In fact, we're often the most guilty of anyone. Professional ministers. We're as susceptible to and as guilty of false humility as anyone else in the church, if not more. So I'm not letting myself off the hook here. If we're not careful in our own minds, the church can become all about us, all about building a name for ourselves, a reputation in the community and among our peers and in our denominations and organizations that we belong to. The fact is, no one in the church is immune to the trappings of false humility. But I'm telling you, it is the enemy of unity in the church. Putting yourself first is the enemy of unity in the church because when you put others first, when you put yourself first, you're putting others last. And there's nothing that will kill unity within the church quicker than that. So uh, what's the remedy for false humility? This is really important because our culture, and even much of our church culture in this country, is so steeped in self-focus that I'm not sure, I don't even think we, re we realize what we're doing. I think most people don't recognize the difference anymore between false humility and true humility. Right? So, so what's the remedy for false humility? Well, it begins by desiring Christ more than we desire anything else in this world. And then out of that desire, we devote our lives to Jesus Christ more than we're devoted to anyone else in this life, including and especially ourselves. And so that process of dying to yourself to the point that you desire Christ more than anything else in this world, that process will bring you to your knees in humble repentance and a genuine devotion to Him even more than you're devoted to yourself. By the way, that's not only sometimes painful, and very often difficult and always a profound, humbling path to walk, but it's the one that we must walk if we're going to truly follow Jesus Christ. He's the one who said, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, Luke 14, 33. And I would argue that renouncing all that we have starts by renouncing our own pride more than anything else. And, and if that convicts you today, just know that it convicts me more. And then what happens inside of us, when we do get to that place where he's truly the most important thing in our lives, 
We live humbly before each other, preferring one another before ourselves. In fact, it begins to become quite natural, and that is the ingredient that causes unity to grow and flourish within the church. And it all starts with our humble fidelity, our humble commitment to Jesus Christ before everything else. Let's finish the story for today. As the Western tribes now respond to the Eastern tribes' explanation for this new altar. Verse 30 to the end of the chapter. When Phinehas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heads of the, uh, heard of the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you've delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God." Uh, so Phineas and the tribal leaders are completely satisfied with the reasons given for building this altar and the relief that you can sense in their response is almost palpable. In verse 31, Phineas says, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you've not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you've delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. In other words, because you built this altar for all the right reasons, we no longer have to fear God's wrath on all of Israel like that which was experienced when our parents fashioned a golden calf back in the wilderness. And furthermore, just to understand how bad this could have been, the language used in verse 33 really underscores the extreme measures that the Western tribes were prepared to take in order to satisfy that wrath of God if the altar had been built for the wrong reasons. Verse 33 says, The people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. That word destroy in the ancient Hebrew is the word shakoth. It's a particularly volatile word. It refers to complete destruction and ruination. And what makes it so significant and so unique is the fact that despite all of the fighting throughout this book that we've already seen, all of the battles, all of the complete destruction, right? We talked about the Karim principle, the destruction of the cities in Canaan and the killing of people and warriors and kings and men and women and children and livestock. Despite all of that destruction we see throughout this book, verse 33 is the only instance in the entire book of Joshua where this particular word is used to describe the kind of war that was about to take place just before the explanation given by the eastern tribes. This was as extreme as you can get. And so once you understand just exactly what Phineas was expressing here, you can only then truly begin to get a feel for just how incredibly relieved they all must have been when Phineas's pronouncement was that now all is well between us once again. It's evidenced by what the eastern tribes do at the close of the chapter. They give the altar a name, which was a common practice in ancient Near Eastern culture to name something after you built it. But the significant part is the name itself. Verse 34, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For they said it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. And so instead of 
walking away from this entirely heart-stopping, stressful, nearly fatal misunderstanding with a sense of indignance toward the Western tribes, which would have been easy, right? As the Eastern tribes are completely innocent in the matter, the Eastern tribes chose instead to affirm their relationship with God and with the Western tribes because they were more concerned about the unity between them than they were about their own feelings, which we would do well to take to heart today because maintaining unity among the family of God means affirming one another even when you're not feeling it, okay? The value that is assigned to us as members of the family of God is based on who we are in Christ, not on how well we perform for one another. The Eastern tribes could have very easily been incensed by the Western tribes, especially after all they'd just done for the Western tribes over the past seven years, risking their own lives for them, sometimes on a daily basis, while their own families had to be without them. At worst, tensions could have risen to the level of war, but at the very least, with war averted, these Eastern tribes could have named that altar anything they wanted to. Right? They could have named it, Thanks for Nothing, Western Tribes Memorial. Thanks a lot for trusting us. Not. Thanks for assuming the worst about us. Memorial, right? But of course they didn't. Even after this extremely harsh confrontation, they chose to affirm their brothers in the family of God because they valued the Western tribes for who they were, not for what they'd just done or for how they just approached them or just accused them, not for how they must have made them feel. And likewise... The value that is assigned to us today as members of the family of God is not based on how well we perform for one another or even on how well we're treated by one another. We certainly should be treated well by each other, but even if we're not, no, our value as brothers and sisters in Christ is based on who we are in Christ, period. But I think it's common today in our culture, even in our church culture, to find believers who assign value to other believers based on how they feel about them or based on how they're treated by them. So if someone has different ideals than us about family or politics or social issues, or maybe their worldview is different, maybe they don't treat us as we'd like for them to. We may not value them as a brother or sister in Christ in the same way we would with someone whose ideals line up closely with our own, or with someone who treats us better. By the way, when I talk about different ideals among us, I'm not talking about people who peddle false doctrine in the church. Jesus and the scriptures are very clear about dealing decisively with false teachers. I'm talking about people who we disagree with on issues that are not gospel issues. Okay, it's fine to disagree about tax policies and uh, political issues and how the government should be run and social issues and what kind of yogurt you eat and the type of fertilizer you put on your garden and, and on and on and on and on it goes, right? I mean, people have opinions about everything and that's fine. The truth is there's nothing wrong with having spirited, even vigorous debates about all of those things. But at the end of the day, don't allow those disagreements to affect the degree of value you assign to that brother or sister in Christ in your own heart. You know why? Because Jesus shed the same blood for them as he did for you. Which means our value as members of the same family, the family of God, our value is not defined by how we feel about each other. No, our value is defined by who we are in Christ. 
And so we should be affirming one another, expressing love and care and concern for one another based on the fact that we're brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters in the same family, regardless of how much we agree or disagree with each other on any number of issues. So sure, disagree, go ahead, debate, discuss all of these important things that affect all of our lives as citizens of the same country. There certainly are different paths politically and socially and fiscally and so on that our our country can take. And I firmly believe some of those are far better than others. But please don't allow those disagreements to overshadow the fact that we're citizens of the same kingdom first, members of the same family. We are the people of God. And what sets us apart, what makes us unique, what gets us noticed by the world around us is not our political prowess or our positions on social issues or a culturally conservative worldview. No, what sets us apart is our love for one another, our unity in Jesus Christ and our common commitment to affirm each other in that same spirit of love and unity that can only be found as a member of his family. Of course, what makes us members of the same family is not the fact that we have the same opinions about everything. No, it's the fact that we have all been redeemed by the same person, Jesus Christ. You understand, this is going to hurt somebody's feelings, but the fact is you're going to be in heaven someday worshiping Jesus surrounded by people you disagreed with here on earth. You are. Which again is why Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you all vote for the same guy. Well, that's not what he said. If you all go to the same church. No. If you all agree on everything. No, he said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. You see, it all comes back to loving others more than we love ourselves. And loving others more than we love ourselves means being fixated, fixated on the source of that love, Jesus Christ. Because when he is the first priority in your life, then putting others before yourself actually comes quite naturally. And so again, if you're not loving others more than you love yourself today, then Jesus Christ is probably not the first priority in your life. And you understand There's a question then that we absolutely must answer as members of the family of God. If we're not loving others more than we love ourselves today, the question is, why am I not putting Jesus Christ first in my life right now? This is the most important question that we really need to answer when it comes to loving others, because this is the backbone of the church, the linchpin that holds the family of God together, our unity in Christ. Our health as a family demands it. Our testimony to the world is completely dependent upon it. And our ability to love one another like we should is determined by it. Our unity in Christ is what enables us to love each other more than we love ourselves. And at the end of the day, that's what it means to be a member of the family of God. Let's pray.